We're good. How many know what today is? Saint. We got sports fans and something. <laughs> oh, oh, day to pray. Yes, Obama was sworn back in. It's it is the day to pray. Mike Huckabee called for a day to pray nationwide. It also is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a big day. <laughs> Actually, every third uh, third January, I'm sorry, every third Sunday in the month of January is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And the reason that it's every third Sunday in January is because January 22nd is actually the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, and this January 22nd marks 40, 40 years of the legalization of Roe v. Wade. Um, for those of you that may be new around here and not familiar with the Justice House of Prayer or Me Bethany Temple, I know that some of you automatically, when you heard that word Roe v. Wade or even the word abortion, you kind of twinge a little and are kind of like, oh my Lord, is she going to give us a political talk right now? Get me out of here. Um, I'm not going to give you a political talk. I'm actually going to talk to you from the Word of God. And, and to be very, very clear, and this is what I want to say, we are going to focus on the sanctity of life today. That includes unborn, but that also includes the elderly, that includes the handicapped. The sanctity of life is that human life is precious. Amen. No matter how small it is, no matter how large it is, Amen. no matter how capable it is, or how incapable it is. Whether it looks like a contributing factor to society, or whether it looks as though it somehow um, is a hindrance to society and to other people. The, the understanding that based upon the word of God, that every individual holds value. And some of you may, this might be a very new topic for you. It might be a little bit foreign. It might be a little bit offensive. Um, I wish I could say I'm sorry if it's offensive, but I'm actually not. I think it's actually more an indication of the poor part that the church has done of clearly disseminating the word of God on issues of life. Um, and so just so you know, we as the House of Prayer, it's not like every week when you come here that you're going to hear a message on something that's politically charged. Um, I will say that I think in the generation that we, in which we live, that more and more to be a biblically sound Christian, you are going to find yourself taking positions on things that are politically controversial. Amen. And I say that because oftentimes we, and we'll look at through the word of God today, we shy away from things that politically kind of cause a little bit of discomfort, but the word of God is very, very clear and decisive on some of these issues, and it's more our cultural bias and what we want to fit in with and what we want to not offend the heart of other people or the opinions of other people, but all the while we're offending the heart of God because we're silent on issues that he is extremely passionate about. So we are going to discuss the sanctity of life today, and basically where we're going to start with that is I'm actually going to give you uh, just a couple of points before we move into like the understanding of the sanctity of life, of why we would engage in something that is apparently a political issue. And like I said, it really isn't, but in the mind of culture and church, um, it's viewed as that. Um, but number one, the role of the church. I think if we clearly define what the calling of the church is to be, then we'll actually understand of why we speak into issues like this. How many of you guys are familiar uh, with Matthew chapter 5? You guys familiar with the Sermon on the Mount? Actually, let's turn there really quickly.
actually, before I go any further, I just want to make one thing very clear, that everything that we discussed today, that there is no guilt or no condemnation for anybody, whether you directly, I, I mean, the statistics are, I mean, even within this room, even if you yourself have not had an abortion, you could be someone that even in your teen years, you counseled someone that that was a wise thing to do and you persuaded them in some way. Uh, it's very possible in a room this size that there's people that have given finances for other, other people to have abortions, that there's participation. And we just want to make it extremely clear that there's no judgment saying that someone that has participated in that area of sin is any more guilty or that there's any kind of shame upon their life that's different than pride, jealousy, competition. I mean, the word of God actually in Proverbs is very clear that if you sow discord amongst the brethren, that it's actually numbered with the seven abominations. It's the shedding of innocent blood, Sowing discord amongst the brethren, I mean, it's numbered in there together as you are guilt and it's an abomination before the Lord. So just understanding that all of us that are here in this room today, the ground at the cross is level. Amen. We all stand on level ground regardless of our past, regardless of our history, regardless of what we've taken part in. And we all desperately need the blood of Jesus to wash us and cleanse us. And that's the only thing that makes us righteous. Not whether we've been involved or have not been involved or what our standing has been in the past. Um, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It, it, is it then, oops, that is, um, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I actually want you to turn very quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. This, this theme of light, um, obviously here in Matthew, it's, it's speaking about salt and light as the role of the church. Salt is the preserving quality. Light as the illuminating. You think about it this way. If you're in a dark room, when you turn on the light, it's what enables you to see clearly. Without light, you cannot see clearly. And that is actually the role of the church that we see, that it's, it's the speaking and declaring of the word of God. It's the speaking and declaring of truth that we can see rightly. And if the church holds it peace on issues of righteousness and justice, no one can see clearly. No one can rightly, we have a culture that is walking around in darkness and confusion, but then we also have a church that's basically saying, I don't want to offend, I don't want to step on toes, there's so many cultural biases, this isn't my role. So it's doing exactly what Matthew 5 says, is do not put your light under a bushel. Do not let it be hidden, but shine your light before all men. And that's the place of boldly saying, there is clarity in the word of God. We don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to take different things, even through science, that develop over years and they change. The authority of science even changes. They'll, they'll make one proclamation, we'll kind of all alter our lives around that, and then five to ten years later they're going, oops, science, the research has changed on this. But if you do it based upon the word of God, the word of God never changes. It's eternal. And even with the issue of life, an issue of something like abortion, that's why we don't base it even upon science. 
upon the question of when life begins. We base it upon what the Word of God says. So actually, in Ephesians 5, I don't know how many turned there. I'm just going to read you the whole thing, actually. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness. Oh, sorry, did I tell you verse 8? No. I didn't, I'm sorry. <laughs> Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest in light, therefore he says, Awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. When he says what the will of the Lord is, understand what the will of the Lord is. He's actually referencing what he just said. He just gave an exhortation, which I think most of the body of Christ would agree, you're not to take part in the works of darkness. Okay, we can all agree upon that. But now when you go on to this second charge, and when he actually says, but rather expose them. It's a charge. It's not simply just don't take part in it and turn a blind eye. It's not simply just don't participate, but just be quiet and pretend like it's not going on. He's literally saying expose it. That would be the same as if you were walking by an injustice taking place and you chose to just keep walking. Just keep walking. I'm not going to take part. Just keep walking. I mean, the, the irony of the fact that the church is silent on so many, so many issues, to me it's as black and white as, is if you saw a woman being raped and just walked right by. You're, guilt, you're not guilty, right? Because you did not take part in it. It's just like, just like this verse say, saying, do not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Well, you didn't take part, but rather expose it. Would you not cry out on behalf of the one that was being perpetrated? Would you not act on their behalf? But it's the same thing in culture, that when we, we turn a blind eye and we turn a deaf ear and we refuse to engage and be salt and light... We're those that understand, that clearly see by the word of God, but we don't want to engage in that battle. We just keep walking by. It's, it's really no different even than the story of the Good Samaritan. Of seeing someone suffering and destitute in pain and broken, and the priest just keeps walking on by. That ultimately, we as, as, as this generation, a New Testament church, each one of us is kings and priests. I'm not downing the pastors. I'm ordained. I would have to be numbered with that. I am not downing church leadership. I'm saying the church at large, we need to understand that this is the charge to us. First of all, do not take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You are to have no part. But secondly, it is not just a charge to me, Bethany Temple, because I lead the Justice House of Prayer that I take up the cause for justice, it is a charge to each and every single one of us, expose the works of darkness. That when you are in situations that even the controversy, when it comes up about the issue of abortion, I've been in family gatherings. I mean, I really like my extended family. 
But, you know, they, bring, they start bringing up political topics, and you sit there and you think, okay, you're the one that did it. You are the one that did it. <laughs> I kind of have this rule with my unsaved, all those family members, that I, I will not be the one to bring up. You know, who wants to get into that? Seriously, I don't. <laughs> but if someone is going to start bringing up things that there's an ideological battle, and you hear them as they're discussing it, and you're sitting there going, that is absolutely not true according to the word of God. You are absolutely deceived. I'm sorry, but that research is not accurate. You have heard a biased opinion from liberal media. You're sitting there. For you to hold your peace and to be quiet, it is an injustice. And this is actually what I want us to understand even later on as we're kind of going through the word of God, is that oftentimes the church has not engaged in issues like this. Because they have actually seen it as a battle of winning and losing. Mm-hmm. Wow. That somehow I will not engage. Like, okay, let's just bring it here. We'll bring it out of, like, government, politics. So I'm with, like, 40 or 50 of my extended, very vibrant, loud, opinionated family. <laughs> <laughs> so we bring it to, a, okay, Bethany is the religious fanatic. They know that I've been, like, praying and fasting since I was, like, 12. They're all going to write me off as a loony. And they're all educated. Most of them have multiple, multiple degrees and multiple, multiple things. So I can write it off of, I will lose this debate. They're going to eat me alive. I'm outnumbered. They're all very educated. And I'm not. I know the Bible. (laughs) I could do all of those things. But instead, we need to understand that by the word of God, the the defining factor is not winning and losing. Amen. The defining factor is being a witness. That is the defining factor. So whether it's your school, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your family, wherever you are, if you are defining it by, I will not engage because I will lose, that's really what the church has done with certain political and cultural issues. I will not engage because I will lose. This is a losing battle. It's far beyond us, us, the poor, pitiful, weak church. When we see in the book of Acts the issue, yeah. let's be, the book of Acts, for those of you that were here last year from January till I think it took us until September to get through the book of Acts, over and over again we saw these guys unrelentingly preaching the word of God. They refused to be silent. But in every situation, it looked as like there was utter defeat. I mean, you're getting whipped, you're getting imprisoned, you're getting... I mean, it was just constant setup and barraging against them. They did not look like a victorious church. But we actually... I'll actually turn there very quickly. Acts 4, and it's 13 through 22. Acts 5, 29 through 32. These are actually two different accounts that we find in Acts. And we literally find that these men were not out going, I'm going to win the battle. I'm going to persuade you to see my side. They're seeing the beauty, the integrity, and the nobility of being a witness. See, that's extraordinary. We have to get a huge paradigm shift. You need to understand that whether it's standing out doing a life siege with life tape on your mouth, whether it could be in your political science class, it could be even in debate. How many young people have I talked to when it's come to a point where they're going to debate an issue and they've kind of gone, do I? Like, do I present one of these hot topics and bring up, and I'm going, do it. Do it. You get the floor. <laughs> on, these tip, on these topics, the, we need to understand that it's not about whether who wins or loses. Yeah. Can you even imagine the joy in the heart of God when he, when, even when, where he says in Deuteronomy that I searched all of the earth for a heart that was completely toward me. 
some of you are probably going completely towards you, like, how do I have a heart? I mean, in some translations it says, a heart that's perfectly toward me. Perfectly toward me. You know, for most of us, we think that's an impossibility. Like, I have so many areas of my heart that aren't perfectly toward me, toward him. But let me just ask you this question. In whatever dimension or whatever area, sphere of society, or just socially, or even amongst friends at a dinner party, because we all have been in those situations. When you choose to partner on the side of truth, can you even imagine the joy in the heart of God saying, I found a friend. I found somebody that stands with me where I stand. I've found somebody that agrees with my heart and their allegiance isn't to their own comfort and their allegiance is not to their own status. Their allegiance is not to their own reputation. Their allegiance is with my heart. That's extraordinary. That he, when he finds a friend of his heart, that basically that we're not bowing to the God of comfort and we're not bowing to the God of what my image is in this life. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Me and Daryl are actually just having this conversation about what someone thought about me. Um, in, in all honesty, at the end of the day, who cares what anyone Anyone, I don't care if it's a professor, and I don't care if it's your employer. Who cares what they think about you when you know that you're pleasing the heart of God, when God himself is moved by your devotion and by your life? If you are moving the heart of God, that's the place where who cares about anyone? They could fire you, they could throw you out, they could, at the end of the day, you have, you have been crowned with favor from God. But the opposite is also true. We can live our life doing the political game, and we all live in Massachusetts, so we all know where politics stand. I mean, honestly, when I travel and I'm on, on other parts of the countries, I almost feel like people, like, scowl at me when they hear I'm from Massachusetts. Massachusetts, oh, like, you know, and I'm like, I love it. I really, really love it. Maybe it's because I'm up for a good challenge all the time, but I love it. <laughs> but in all of those things, the understanding that if I am standing in agreement with the heart of God, all the rest of the world can be against me. But if I know that I'm bringing pleasure to his heart because I've stood in agreement with him, actually, it just reminded me, for those of you that know Lewingle, he's extremely poetic. Like, he says things in ways that, like, I mean, I'll get a text message, I'll be like, I would have had to, like, work three weeks to come up with something so eloquently worded. <laughs> so he was emailing a couple weeks ago about his son. I don't know if this is publicly. Oh, okay. And, uh, it's fine. Wait. One of his sons that's going to be uh, taking a journey. I'll just say. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, let's just talk. For those of us that have been in Massachusetts long enough that we do things at the State House and we go pray there, I know how many times I thought, oh my God, I'm sure every single person looking at me now know, has, has, my, has seen my face on a bulletin board that I'm the conservative Christian girl that used to come pray against same-sex marriage. Like, <laughs> I mean, just those kind of, because you put yourself out there, but at the end of the day, who cares? Like, who really cares? Who ca and that's what we find in the book of Acts. We find that the issue was not about winning or losing. Yeah. Not about whether you win the debate. And honestly, we're going to talk about legislation later. It's really not even about the legislation or what happens in the Supreme Court. It's about the witness. Yeah. Amen. That's the core issue. And if you look at the Old Testament prophets, I encourage you to study them. 
There's an extraordinary thing about the Old Testament prophets. Our, our team hears this all the time for me <laughs> because it's one of my favorite things. The Old Testament prophets, if they were speaking the word of the Lord, if they were calling people to repentance, if they were de deciphering the sin in the land and exposing it, all of those things, if they were speaking those things and no one agreed with them, they were utterly despised and everyone basically thought they were crazy. Th those Old Testament prophets had a very, very, very different understanding of what it was to be victorious than we do. See, in our day and our culture, we would view it as, if I released the word of the Lord that we all needed to repent in Massachusetts and everybody thought I was an idiot, I failed. God didn't endorse me. The Old Testament prophets, their definition was, evil has only triumphed if, the, if the, there cannot be one voice of righteousness found in the land. Wow. As long as there is one voice declaring righteousness and truth, there is, still a, there is still a contending side. As long as there is one voice, yeah. that's the defining. But the only time that you can actually shrink back and just say, evil is triumph. It, it's just completely overtaken. There is no hope. Is that if, if the voice of the prophet, or we'll say even the voice of the church is silent. See, if we choose to be silent on issues pertaining to righteousness and justice, pertaining to truth and the word of God, you're absolutely right. Evil has triumphed. In Massachusetts, if the church, if we refuse to engage, we have, you know what it is? It's because what we've done is we've just yielded yeah. the fight. We've said, I'm no longer engaging. You can have it. But as long as there is a voice on behalf yeah. of truth, evil has not triumphed. Amen. There is still the declaration of the word of God. It is still an opportunity and an occasion for him to find a witness in the earth. That's extraordinary. And it's actually viewing it from a different lens and from a different perspective and a different understanding. Um, just for time's sake, we're actually not going to go all through uh, Acts 4, but just for your notes, Acts 4, 13 through 22, and Acts 5, um, 29 through 32. I mean, really the whole book of Acts, if you, if you look at it. It was the understanding that the voice of silence is the voice of consent. Um, Okay, so this, just to, basically those three points, salt and light, as far as Ephesians 5, that we're not just called to not participate in the works of darkness, we're called to expose them, and then also how we define, it's not winning and losing, or losing, it's about being a witness, that is why we as a ministry, as a congregation, as a community of people, choose to engage, and that why we see it that it is actually our, our obligation rather than something that we have an option to engage or disengage. Uh, secondly, just to very quickly um, communicate for those of you that have never had any kind of teaching as far as the Word of God pertaining to abortion, um, what does the Bible clearly say about abortion? Um, do you want to let him know there's a seat here for him when he comes out? <laughs> it's a little cramped in our room. Um, what does the Bible say about abortion? Most of you in this room have probably heard, nobody can really agree, you know, people like myself, I'll, I'll put myself right there, no shame, people like myself would agree that life begins at conception. You have other people that actually will talk about it's not until there's actually blood flow. Like it's not so much an egg and a sperm, but it's actually when blood can be found. And they can actually bring that back to the Bible. The Bible says there's life in the blood. Um, so it's blood. For some people, it has to do with chromosomes and the number of chromosomes that you have. That actually, for other people, it's actually to the issue of breath. 
that unless there is breath, there is no life. So these are all debates in science. But truly and honestly, in all of our culture and society, nobody can actually agree. Like, nobody can come to a definitive answer. This is when life begins. This is the... So because, and as much as I will say, like I said, I'm not going to impose my belief upon you that it's at conception, because there is, there's actually no verse that says it's at conception. But what the Word of God does say in Psalm 139, mm-hmm. verse 13, and this is like foundational mm-hmm. for everything else that we're going to discuss. If you want to turn to Psalm 139... Uh, verse 13, and most of you are familiar with this passage. This is actually where the psalmist, was, David, is saying, You knit me together in my mother's womb. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Who knit me together? What he's declaring is, You knit me together in my mother's womb. What that is saying is, God is the knitter. He is knitting. That word in the Greek is actually weaving something together. It's the intricacy of human life. I mean, it's extraordinary that from the time of conception, actually, that what color your eyes are going to be is determined and already there. That is an extraordinary thing. You as an individual, your entire makeup of personality is already existing. So Psalmist David saying, you knit me together in my mother's womb. The the authority here is whether you believe that life began at conception, when there was blood, the number of chromosomes, breath, wipe that clean. If God is knitting something together, if God himself is creating something, you have no business interfering with his creation. Amen. He's designing something. He's creating something. So I don't care what your science says. I don't care if you even say that it can't be proved until the child takes its first breath. The authority that God himself is the creator, that he is knitting something together, and the audacity of human beings to think that we have the authority to intervene. I mean, that is just the most prideful, audacious. God is a creator. God is a designer. God is an artist. God is a father. He's knitting something. And we go, this something is just not so convenient. I mean, the understanding that it's originating from him, and so you are interfering with the knitter. Wow. So every other debate, every other question of when life begins, Job 31, 13 through 15 um, this is Job speaking. If I have despised the cause, the cause of my male and female servant when, when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? He's speaking about his servants. He's speaking about those that are supposedly less than him, that he supposedly rules over. He says, what shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? You know, it's extraordinary. I know many of you in this place aren't parents. But, you know, once you have a child, the immense love that you have for them, just their, your world revolves around them. Just all, all that entails that. 
it, it has completely changed my understanding of every individual under the sun, whether they be addict, whether they be rapist. Regardless of the status of the individual, to know that, and I mean, this is broader, I'm going to take it someplace broader, but to, when you look at an individual to say, that man has a mother and that man has a father that care deeply. I mean, even if it's somebody that's on death row, and, you know, all of society would be like, they deserve to die. You know, you condemn them to death. Those individuals have a mother and they have a father. Those are people that nurtured them, that cared for them. The identity of that individual, and even more so and even beyond that, understanding God their father. That even like Job is saying here, like oftentimes we somehow think God is like on our side, Right? Isn't it true? Like in situations in life when an injustice is done against you, they just don't get you, they just don't like you, they're not giving you a fair shot in life, all of that. We somehow think that like God is on my side. And he's just, and he is, he loves you. But when, <laughs> I'm sorry if I made you like he doesn't. But if you begin to view like even like Job, that in the situations that you're so angry and judgmental towards other people, just like Job said, when God rises up to punish the same God that wove me in my mother's womb, he wove them. He's just as invested in the person you can't stand. That's a crazy thought. God is just as invested in the details of their life, in their pain. He knows their story. He gets it from the beginning and the end as he is in your life. That it's, it's very easy for us to accept that he's invested in us. <laughs> it's very easy for us to think, God, God sees my pain. You know, all of those things. But understanding that the other individual, just like Job said, when God rises us up to punish the same God that wove me together in my mother's womb. Wove that person together in their mother's womb. The very details. He knit them. He wove them. He, he's invested <coughs> in their personality, in their destiny. He wants them to succeed. It's extraordinary when you begin to understand the heart of God toward other people. So, number one, this issue of understanding that God is the knitter. That this is why we take the stand that we take on the issue of abortion. Number two, the word of God is extremely clear. Most of you are very familiar with the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. I mean, it's murder throughout the Bible. The issue of innocent bloodshed mm -hmm. is one of the most serious issues that's addressed. Mm -hmm. But also the addressing of innocent bloodshed in a land and the judgment that it brings upon people. Um, in John 8:44, it actually speaks about Satan, that he was a murderer from the beginning. So just like I shared with you guys earlier, that if we actually can't decipher when life begins, if there's a margin of question that it's, you know, after conception when there's life on, on the cellular level, or if it's when any of those things, if we don't know for certain, we best err on the side of caution. That if it possibly could be murder, we don't want to be counted amongst those as murderers. We don't want to be guilty of that. It's the absolute of the understanding of murder. Lastly, it's, um, it's an assault on and it demeans the nature of God. Mm -hmm. Most of you are very familiar with the story of creation, Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times God created them. God created man and woman. In his image, it's the very image of God that is being revealed and displayed through humanity. 
Um, I'm sure everybody is in the room is is familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. <laughs> My son actually continually says to me, Mommy, why did they eat the fruit again? Like, <laughs> he's just like, I don't get it. Like, they, they opened it up for all of us here. <laughs> and then I always bring it back to, they disobeyed. God told them what to do, and they just disobeyed. You know? <laughs> but he asks the question on and off, why did they eat the fruit again? But this understanding that God set a boundary. There's the, the tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil. You enjoy all of the garden. You get it all, except for, don't touch that tree. The knowledge of good and evil. The essence of actually what we find at the fall is that rather than enjoying God, just enjoying him, that he knows all, he sees all, we trust him. If he said it, it's good. It's good. It's just good because it's God. Don't have to get it. I don't have to rationalize it. I don't need an equation to understand it. God said it, so it's good. I'm not touching the tree. It's all cool. What happened was is they moved from enjoying God to wanting to be God. I will make my own decision. I will make my own choice for myself. I will decide if it's good for me or bad for me. Through that place of reason... And this is the extraordinary thing about the issue of abortion, is what we have done in America is we have made woman the God. That her will and her want supersedes the will and the want of God. That God himself is knitting together, like we saw through scripture, in in the mother's womb, a child. And what we have done is we have said, it is your will, and if it is your want. If this is not your desire, then you have the authority to end it. We give you that privilege. What we have done is we have placed the choice of a woman over the right of a child to live. And in essence, it's giving the authority to play God of beginning and ending life. And for those of you that don't know, it is, it is staggering the statistics in our culture and society of how much of abortion really has to do with this issue of convenience. And that's not just 18, 19, 20-year-old girls in college that can't finish their college degree, so they have an abortion. It's... it's professionals later in life, women in their late 30s that are on a high career path that are going somewhere and they feel that a child would hinder that. That's people that are settled in their life, they actually like their economic status and a child, even in a married situation, would now compromise their life of leisure and vacationing. It's all of those areas of society of saying that this is not convenient and this infringes upon my wants and my desire and what I want. Um, So those are like the basic foundations as far as why we take a stand biblically on the issue of abortion. Lastly, let's just talk as a group of people. So some of you are sitting here kind of going, so what the heck does she want me to do about this? (laughs) Like this is a problem with the state house. This is a problem with the Supreme Court. And most of you are well aware we definitely do not have a president that is empathetic to the pro-life cause. But what I will say is we have a president who his mother chose life. When she didn't have to. For those of you that don't know, Barack Obama's mother was white. His father was black. They were unwed. And let's just think, I don't know how old Barack Obama is exactly. Anybody know? But I can guarantee you that at that point in time, that racial tension was a whole heck of a lot more of an issue Mm -hmm. than it is right now. For an unwed woman to be carrying an African-American's baby. But you know what? She, instead of her choosing for herself a life of convenience and what it was going to do to her, she carried the seed of that child, who is now a president. 
I mean, who are we to deem a life that is worth living and one that is not? So we have Barack Obama, who I firmly believe that even his own background, a mother that chose life rather than aborting, I firmly believe that if the eyes of his heart were open to understand what his fate and his destiny could be, that there would be a tenderizing of his spirit to the, to the plight of the unborn. Jesus. So what is our response? Number one, our response is supplication. Welcome to the house of prayer. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I, between college students, professionals, praying with people at the state house, I have over and over heard, and, and I'm going to say to me, not because I, I'm involved with the house of prayer, but because I understand the nature of God, I have over and over heard people minimize the place of prayer. Of They've looked at the issue of abortion, there's so many cultural issues that we look at and we think, okay, so you want, and let's, let's take human trafficking. I know that a lot of our community were actually just out at IHOP for the abolitionist um, summit. Even something like human trafficking, so many people are emboldened and, and want to see a change. And then when you sit them down and you, they kind of go, well, what can I do? We go, and the first thing you say, you can pray. Most of you, and let's just be honest, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, when we talk about issues like abortion, when we talk about um, human trafficking, when we let's just for those of you that have a heart for kids, I do. I know when I begin to assess the landscape of orphans in the world that need a mom, you know, you you start to feel extremely powerless. Like going, oh, okay, I'll take them all. I'll do whatever I need to do. I mean, you're very limited. But most of us, when we say the first thing you can do is pray, we almost do it as like it's a resignation of well. I can't do anything else, so I guess I can pray. <laughs> Honestly, that is so insulting to the nature of God. Somehow we think that in the light of these ginormous issues, all I can do is pray and I feel so powerless. What we are actually doing when you feel powerless that your position is prayer, is what you are doing is you are saying, God is too small. Wow. You're saying God is too small, that somehow... Or we don't have a clear understanding that when we pray, we are praying to someone. When you pray, you're not just simply giving a petition and trying to get a weight off your heart like it's some kind of new age therapy. You're not singing and I'm going, I'm burning for the unborn and I'm going to cry my eyes out. And somehow that was my therapy because I at least spoke it into the air. You are speaking to someone that has all authority over heaven and earth. He can set anything in motion in a moment. He can, it says, he turns the heart of the king like waters. He can change the heart of a leader in a moment. And somehow, we feel powerless to pray for that leader. He can change the entire landscape of a city in a moment. But for some reason, when we step back and we look at our university, we look at our city, we're like, oh, I'm powerless. All I can do is pray. Prayer is the most powerful thing you can do. I know people that are on the fast track. They're getting their law degree. They're going to become a congressman. They're going to do they, they're, they know what they want to do to bring change. And I guarantee you at the end of the day, if they are not first and foremost in the place of prayer, getting wisdom from God alone, favor from God alone, all of your human effort is nothing. I don't care what title you have. I don't care what degree you have. I don't care what position you have. How many of you have seen senators that are pro-life? 
They make their way to a place. They make their way to a seat. They make their way to a position. And all of a sudden, they're no longer the crusader of life that they once were. Why is that? Why does this happen in politics? Why does this happen with people that are going to have these grandiose images of, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to get so much wealth, and then I'm going to eradicate poverty in Africa. You know, it started, I'm going to be honest, it starts with a God idea. It starts with the seeds of faith of God saying, you could do this. But when we begin to step into the place of what we are going to do, and somehow we think we're going to do it apart from God, or that somehow prayer is weak and it's pitiful and it doesn't work, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something. I'm going to show you how it's done. That is the beginning of the end for us. Pride comes before a fall. It says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Really, the most approach to humility that we can take is in the place of prayer. I will say to you, all of us, I'm here on this. I'm not pointing the finger. For all of us, our dependency and our humility is directly revealed from the place of prayer that we take. That's day to day, hour to hour, year to year. How dependent you are upon the power and the presence of Christ in your life is revealed with the amount of time you spend in prayer. I mean, I get it. I I see pastors all the time that are like, I can't spend two hours a day in prayer. My life is far too busy. I don't have the time for that. I pray without ceasing all day long. Cool. I actually attempt to do the same thing too, but that does not take away from the place of direct one-on-one interface with God. You know what it is? You know, when we kind of resort to that, I'm going to pray all day. I'm just going to shakabaka everywhere I go. I love that. I mean, I do that. I'm always, whether I'm doing dishes or on a conference call or, you know, whatever I'm doing, I am in the place in my spirit like communing with the Lord. I get it. I like it. But when we actually say that that's our prayer life rather than actually taking one-on-one focused time, do you want to know really what it is when we move out every other distraction to spend time with the Lord? What we're doing is saying, I'm removing everything else because I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. I need to hear from you. That his word is more necessary to us than our daily bread. I mean, do we really believe that? I mean, more necessary than our daily bread. That we're that dependent. That if I don't get a word from God say, hear me, there's many times I'm up before the sun, I'm in my, I'll call it my, it's my office, I call it my prayer room. (laughs) I'm in my prayer room, I'm before the Lord, I'm in the word. I am not getting an epiphany, a revelation. He didn't speak a word about my day. But I will say three hours later, when I'm driving along in my car on the way to a meeting, and there's just the kiss of God upon my heart, that I can hear his voice, that he's speaking to me. I, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. I firmly believe in the principle of sowing and reaping. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that it just came upon me almost like I went under a bird and it pooped and it happened. It hit me. <laughs> like, wow, chance, it hit me. Wow. No, I sowed time to say, my heart needs you. I need you like the barren land needs rain. And if I don't have your presence, I'm ceasing to exist. I'm done. Pack up the show. I'm out. It, it's over. I got nothing left to give. I got nowhere to go. I need your presence. So I'm not saying that when you carve out an hour or two, or even for, if you have 20 minutes, if you carve out 20 minutes, that if you don't hear God's voice speaking to you, 
mind you, you're sowing in the place of prayer. You are going to reap with a heart that is tender to hear his voice. A heart that's inclined to hear his voice. So first and foremost, it's the place of supplication. And when I say first and foremost, I don't say begin there and then hopefully you can do something really effective later. I'm saying begin there, end there, let that be your identity. That although the issue is great, God is not too small. What is impossible with man is possible with God. That is the place of prayer. Two, it's consideration that we would actually be considering. This is what I want to say about Sanctity of Life Sunday. There's 50 million babies that have been awarded over the past 40 years. But what I want to draw your attention to is there's also 50 million women. Granted, a few of those probably are multiple times. But that's accounted in there because it's more than 50 million, the numbers are, of babies. So if you think in our society, this is just America. This is not worldwide. Worldwide, it's about 50 million yearly. So in America, 50 million women that have been wounded, hurt, traumatized, affected forever by the issue of an abortion. That is a whole heck of a lot of brokenness. It's a whole heck of a lot of innocent blood in our land. And it's a whole heck of a lot of hurting women, and even men that have had participation and that have shame on them. That's a hurting society right there. Education, I just want to say, if you live in America, you are not exempt to be educated about the issue of abortion. It is a plague in our nation. It is something in our generation that touches countless numbers of people. You must be, abor- uh, you must be educated on the issue of abortion. The, the 180 movie, it's literally 180.com. You can go there. You can watch a movie. Be educated. You need to be. Um, legislation, the understanding of the change. Uh, let's just say this. As the house of prayer, as, I don't, as the church, it is not our role to advocate as far as certain laws or even people that are going to be voted in. It's only our, our role to pay. But as a citizen, it is your role. It is your, it is your responsibility as an individual to be informed and to be active in legislation. Lastly, proclamation. It is our main calling and our greatest gift to the world is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only message that gives pardon from the agents of death and the, pow- and the, power, um, and the power of the releasing life. And since we have all, at one time or another, been children of darkness, uh, the blood-bought pardon of Jesus is precious to us all. And this is our starting point, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Even if you are completely unable to address social issues, you are not unable to proclaim Jesus Christ, his presence, and what he has done in your life. That is the most powerful testimony you could ever give, is the, the testimony of your experience, of who Jesus is to you. Um, there was a couple of verses I didn't get to, but I actually, could you show, um, is it okay to do videos? Are we set up for that? I think we're good. Okay. Which one would you like? Could you actually show the first one and then we'll mix the other one? We're going to have to take a few slides off. You have them already. Uh, hold on. Let me see if I can do this. I can't, okay, I can't do that. It's okay. Just, just turn it off live for a few slides. Man, it's my phone around. I actually have something else. All right. No. I think you got it. Oh, you got it. Carrie's story. 
God created mankind in his own image. He created them, male and female, in the image of God. Like a set of new glasses that helps us see the world with greater clarity, the value of human life defines how we see and respond to those around us. From the formation of a child's first tiny cell to life's final breath, all life has dignity and value. Because each and every one of us is made in the image of God. And that is why, when we talk about being pro-life, it's not just about a political issue. It's a worldview. It's a life view. It's a way of looking at each human life that transcends culture, class, race, age, and opinion, knowing that we are all uniquely created in the image of God. The sanctity of human life is deeply rooted in Scripture and modeled through the life of Jesus Christ who said, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When we begin to see others as God sees them, we're moved to care more deeply about those created in His image, and we will live each day in a way that honors our Creator. We won't see the scriptures as mere words, but as commands to express His heart through our actions. Commands like speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And ensure justice for those being crushed. Or love your neighbor as yourself. The sanctity of human life speaks to ancient questions that span all of time and every culture. Questions like, who is God? Who am I? Who is my neighbor? Jesus responded to those questions with the story of the Good Samaritan, who saw another man who was broken and bleeding. And instead of looking the other way as others had, he stopped and cared for that man, even at great cost to himself. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Let us see people as God sees them seeing their needs, and having mercy on them, because every person is made in the image of God. Don't be silent in the face of injustice, but be a voice for those who cannot speak for themselves. May we not pass judgment on the woman facing an unexpected pregnancy, but surround her with support, helping her to see the child growing within her as a unique person, with a life as valuable as her own. So, reach out to orphans in distant lands, or the foster child in our own backyard who is waiting, hoping, and praying for a family to call their own. Embrace those with special needs as a special reflection of the image of our Creator God. Let us care for the widow in distress and loneliness. And let us befriend those in prison. Let us shine a light on practices that distort human dignity. Like human trafficking and the cycle of poverty that limits God-given potential and dreams. Make sacrifices to meet the needs of those dying preventable deaths because they lack food, medicine, and clean water. Let us rejoice in the image of God as expressed through various skin colors and ethnic traditions. Refusing to tolerate racist attitudes that mock the one that created us. Let us choose to see those who disagree with us as God sees them, treating them with respect and dignity while helping them to open their eyes to see the beauty and value of life. That is what it means to be pro-life. This is why we need to be a voice. Amen.
Um, so first and foremost, be a voice in the place of prayer, understanding the, the power and the ability to, of God to move on behalf of mankind, but be a voice in culture and in society. Um, I actually had planned today to take an offering for the Crisis Pregnancy Center um, that's here in Boston. For those of you that don't know, um, the first Saturday of every month, we actually do a silent siege. Um, we ha we're not in the month of February. It's actually the week that we have something happening. I don't even know what. But, but beginning March, um, we do silent sieges. All the information is on our website. So I had planned to take an offering for the Crisis Pregnancy Center, but um, we actually have friends, and this is the story, 13 years ago. Um, she was, I think, like 18 years old. Um, some of you actually may, if you've been in and around um, Kansas City, I know some of you guys were just out there. Um, Richie Clark, um, he has a band that's actually called, well, it used to be called Radiant. Um, but we had the opportunity to travel with them many years ago with some things that Lou was doing. Um, and at the time, their son was like three years old. Um, but the story is, she was pregnant, she was like 18, and basically, she was not able to carry full term. So when she was 23 weeks old, she went into labor. And basically, in the medical community, if you deliver a child before 24 weeks, they will actually not even medically intervene. They won't even attempt life support. They, they will do nothing. Um, so her hope was, and what she did, is she just stayed on bed rest and she prayed that she could at least make it to the 24th week. Um, she made it to 24 weeks and one day. And she delivered their son, Richie, which was exactly one pound. Um, she says that he was the length of a Barbie doll. Um, on and on. I mean, you can actually find her blog. She blogs about it. But this was 13 years ago. He, he lived. It was a battle for his life. Um, but they just believed in the, the value and the sanctity of life at any age or regardless of what disabilities. He did have severe um, mental disabilities and handicaps. She actually went on to have two more children, and they actually were able to be carried longer term, but they were delivered extremely premature, and so they have had their own challenges, those other two children. So her just identifying that her body was not able to carry children full term, her fourth child she adopted. They just adopted last year. So she has been staying at home with four children. Richie, who's 13, severely handicapped. Um, two other children that have challenges, and an adopted child that they adopted last year. Um, but they actually just have recently noticed some serious declining in Richie's health. Um, they're right now in Bethel, California, um, believing God for a supernatural healing for their son because he needs a miracle. Um, but in the process of this, um, for those of you, uh, you may have been to their house, um, their house, let's just say this, they're missionaries. <laughs> And they are missionaries in the truest sense of the word. They're, her husband's a worship leader, and he travels extensively, and he serves at IHOP. Um, but just due to the demands of, you know, they still have a 13-year-old in diapers, all of those things, the financial demand upon them. There's a group of people in KC that actually, while they're in Bethel, and the Clarks have no idea, have, are going into their house because now little Richie is, now, now has to be in a wheelchair. So they need everything uh, wheelchair accessible. They need their bathrooms handicapped accessible. There's just a lot of things at the home that need to be altered now. So while they're gone for a week, a group is kind of calling in an extreme make a home makeover, and they're going in to try to help them. And just to be honest, it's a financial, medical, emotional life crisis right now for them. Um, but actually, this was this year. This is what she wrote on his 13th birthday um, that I wanted to reach you because this really is about the sanctity of life. 13 years, old, 13 years ago today, I gave birth to a one-pound baby. After my water broke it at 23 weeks, 
Very few people expected him to live, and we had been holding on desperately to hope that we'd make it far enough that the medical establishment would consider him viable at 24 weeks and take drastic measures to save his life. We made it to 24 weeks in one day. And then you can actually read the full story. But it says, once he lived 72 hours, they started saying he might survive. Pretty quickly, though, they discovered these massive brain bleeds, and, and, and they used the term, his quality of life would be thrown, thrown away. We were, we were 20 years old, shell-shocked and exhausted. We sat and listened to the prognosis, learned how to read brain scans and how to become invisible when big alarms went off and crash carts came running into the room. Jeez. We trusted the staff, respected them, and at the same time, we had to learn how to live in two realities. One, there is no reason that he should live. He, he's having constant seizures, his brain is a shell, and nothing seems to be improving. But two, God gave him to us. We feel like he's going to live, and our prayers matter to God. However, it might end, we knew that we should be praying, hoping, and believing for the best. We've lived for 13 years in those very realities, the natural and the supernatural. Our two has a spirit, he's vibrant, and he's alive. And his broken body doesn't change that. Every challenge we face, we have, we, we have to take in a medical reality and then hold our hope for a greater spiritual reality. We've learned that God is good. God is always good, even when the answer is no. We've seen R2 learn how to walk. He's learned how to feed himself. He's learned to accomplish many, many small things. When there is no medical explanation for why he should be able to, given the extent of his brain damage, he has a great sense of humor and he's a little bit of a prankster. Although his pranks are things like turning on the dishwasher and then running away laughing, <laughs> or closing the door on you, his best friend is his iPad. He carries it everywhere, and he sleeps with, with it if we will let him. He's not, he actually uses his iPad for communication because he can't talk. Um, he's not making a ton of progress on the communication soft, software, but that we're trying to keep working on it still. His technological skills are going to be a major asset in that effort. He has been obsessively pointing to the whiteboard calendar at the birthday cake every day, mm -hmm. multiple times a day. He has indicated with much pointing and flapping that given a group of options, Nemo is the highly exciting and definite theme party. I am so grateful that he, he's doing so well emotionally and medically right now and for his joy, his excitement, and his understanding that this is his special day. It was the day that the world exploded for us, and it was months and months before we saw the light. But now, 13 years later, it is a good day for us. Happy teenage birthday to my tiny Tweety Bird. He turned 13 this year. Um, but I share with you to say on Sanctity of Life Sunday, like I said, I had actually planned to do uh, the Crisis Pregnancy Center. But I know Daryl and I actually are going to sow into this family, just seeing the way that they have fought for the Sanctity of Life in Richie, but not only Richie, even down to the adoption that they just committed to a year ago and that has been um, finalized. But now they're really in a battle, and they desperately need the church to rally around them and support them during this time of crisis. So really as a statement of um, our faith in what God's going to do, but also the value of human life and the value of Richie's life and to stand with this family, we're going to be supporting them. And we just want to give an opportunity if there is anybody that actually wants to sow into the Clark family. Um, but... Actually, I want to close out with a time of prayer, um, if, and we actually only have a couple minutes. So if we could stand to our feet.
God, we just thank you, Father, that the greatest gift, the greatest resource, and the greatest privilege you have given us is the place of prayer. God, we ask, Lord, right now, God, for even a greater impartation of faith, Lord, amongst this community. Lord, to believe you for the impossible. And God, I also thank you, God, for the mystery, God, that it's in the place of prayer. God, that as we posture ourselves in prayer, Lord, that faith increases. Lord, that we begin to see you more fully and see you rightly for who you are. Lord, that you are the God of the impossible. So God, this, this night, God, we bring before you, Lord, our nation. God, we bring before you, God, the injustice, Lord, of the shedding of innocent blood. God, we bring before you, God, even the injustice of the silence of the church. God, we bring before you, God, all of even the foul legislation that has gone forward in this land. God, even right now, God, as it's been the day of swearing in, God, we lift before you the president that we have, Barack Obama. And God, we say prevail, Lord, over this nation. God, prevail over our president. God, I thank you, Father, for the the authority of your word, God, that you hold the heart of the king in your hand, and you can turn it like a water course. God, we thank you, Father, Lord, that Barack Obama's mother chose life. God, we thank you, Father, for the value that she placed upon the life in the womb. And God, we even ask, Lord, right now, God, would you break in with understanding? Lord, would you break in with revelation? Lord, would you tenderize even the heart of our president, Lord, to the plight of the unborn? God, we ask, Lord, across this nation, God, as, as many pulpits have been preaching about the sanctity of life today, God, we say, Lord, raise up a cry of prayer on behalf of the poor and the afflicted. Lord, raise up a cry of prayer on behalf of those with no voice, Lord, the weakest in our culture, in our society, in our nation. Lord, that in the place of prayer and even in the place of the public speaking, God, that we would be an advocate and a voice on behalf of the oppressed. God, we just take the words of Amos to heart. God, we take the heeding of that prophet Amos to heart. Lord, that we would put away the noise of our song and the the clanging of our cymbals and all of our sacred assemblies. And God, instead, Lord, that we would pursue righteousness and justice. And God, we ask, Lord, that you would find pleasure. Lord, that you would find friends of your heart, Lord, across this nation. Those that stand with you in the passion of your heart, Father. We worship you.